Well, let me just go ahead and start in the, the text and what we're doing today. Well, I am a little brother. How many little brothers and sisters we have? You are a little brother or little sister. All right. Awesome. I always wanted to do what my older brother did. I followed him around. I wanted to be like Bill. There are tons of stories that my mom tells about me imitating my brother Bill, copying him, and it drove my brother crazy. My mom would be in a store and ask me if I wanted a a candy bar. I've shared this story before, so bear with me if you've heard this. And I would say, she would say, you can have a candy bar. And I would say, well, what is Bill getting? Like my, I, I didn't turn to the candy bars, I turned to my brother. This happened so much that Bill would choose a horrible candy bar, like Mounds or Payday or Almond Joy, the death of candy bars. And he would tell me I could kindly go check mine out first at the scanner. So I would get mine scanned. As soon as I got mine scanned, he would run back to the candy bars and switch out and get a Caramello or a Snickers or a Glorious Heavenly candy bar. And I was stuck. He tricked me and I would have my payday that is more like a health food than a candy bar. As a little brother, I did everything I could to imitate Bill. I looked up to him so much and yes, it drove him crazy. But Although there is something very annoying about that, I know you older siblings are like, oh my goodness, it drives me crazy or drove me crazy. Even though there's something very annoying about that, there is something really good in that instinct as well. We are created with a desire to imitate what we appreciate. We are created with a desire to imitate what we appreciate. We're created to mold our lives into that which seems admirable. Today's passage hits on that deep desire to imitate. But instead of imitating Bill or your, your sibling or your mom or your daddy or your friend or your coworker or, or school friend, we are to imitate God. We actually are called to imitate God. We as a church, we as believers are called to imitate God. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 to start. It says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We're to imitate God. Point number one today is be imitators of God. As you look at Ephesians, uh, chapters one through three are talking about doctrine. Chapters four through six are talking about practice. The doctrine we believe, chapters one through three, should inform how we live, chapters four through six. And chapter five here is stuck in the middle of that four through six, practical, how do we live? How are we to live? We're to be imitators of God. We're to replicate, mimic, walk in the way of God. But notice the first word in that passage, chapter 5, verse 1. It says, therefore. Therefore. So in light of what we previously studied about putting off and putting on sin, putting on uh, the glory of God, who we are, and putting off our sin, in light of that, we're to imitate God. But also in light of verses 31 and 32, look at 31 and 32 of chapter 4. 
and how that goes into the imitating God. Verse 31, but let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So since God in Christ forgave you, you can forgive others. Since God in Christ forgave you, you can be kind and tender-hearted. Since God in Christ forgave you, you can flee bitterness, anger, and clamor. Since God in Christ forgave you, you can put off the old self and put on the new self. Since God in Christ forgave you, you can be an imitator of God. So we imitate God with our kindness, our tenderheartedness, our forgiving heart. So friends, how is that going? How is your imitating God going in your life with kindness toward others, with tenderheartedness, forgiving others as you've been forgiven? Friends, the text continues this way, and this is super important. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now notice, as beloved children isn't saying you will be loved if you imitate. It's saying that you are loved, so you imitate. You are loved. You're resting in this. This isn't about your personal performance. This is about the grace of God has come to you. You are a beloved child. You are adopted into the family. You are already secure, already loved. And so you imitate God by loving others. He gave love to us, so we give love to others. My kids have heard me say this thousands of times, my biologicals especially, who have been with us for years. They're sitting on my lap and say, do you know why Daddy loves you? Like, because God gave you love for me. Yes, because God gave me love as a dad to love my kids. And friends, that's what we've been given. We've been loved, so we love others. That's the Christian life. Love God, love others. We don't live by performance to receive love. Friends, this is massively important. We don't live by performance, a merit system to receive love, so then we don't live with others in a merit system to give love. That will change your marriage. That will change your parenting. That will change your household. If you live in the grace and the love of God and you treat people in love not based on what they do and don't do. And look what the passage says. Walk in love. We are loved, so we walk in love. It continues, as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us. This love walked out, this, the term that we could put, a phrase we could put around what Christ did is sacrificial love. Christ has a love that is a sacrificial love. It's caring for others. It's sacrificing for them. And we see chapter 5 kind of as a banner here, verse 1 and 2, for what's going to follow. We see this sacrificial love as the text will continue. We'll get this in a few weeks in the marriage relationship. There's sacrificial love there. In chapter 6, the parenting relationship. There's sacrificial love there. In the slave-master relationship, which we can do kind of employee-employer relationship, there's sacrificial love there. There's sacrificial love that is the normal Christian life. 
Friends, get this. Walking out sacrificial love is the normal Christian life. It's normal. Normal Christian life should be us laying down our lives for others as we walk toward Christ, as He laid down His life for us. We might befriend that neighbor that no one likes. Sacrificial love. We might be playing with that neighborhood kid who doesn't have a father. We might be adopting children or fostering. It might be sitting with your spouse and listening and not trying to fix him or her. Not trying to fix, guys, not trying to fix them, but listening. Guilty, right, babe? You don't have to look at her. Sacrificial love. It might be loving on your kids' teachers, or weeping with those who weep, or rejoicing with those who are rejoicing, or a thousand different other ways. We as Christians live a normal Christian life of sacrificial love. Friends, does sacrificial love characterize your life? And even saying sacrificial love, let's note this is costly. This is hard. It is a sacrifice. Duh. It's not easy. Laying down your life for others is hard, which means it can only be done by the empowering work of the Holy Spirit in us. We can't conjure up enough goodness and grace. We need God's help to imitate God. We need God's help to imitate God. And there's an interesting and somewhat odd thing to consider about sacrificial love. Kids, get this. It smells good. Sacrificial love smells good to God. Verse 2, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In the Old Testament, offerings would be made of grain or incense or animals, and the smoke would be offered up, and it would please the Lord, texts say, like Leviticus 1.9, the priest shall burn all the offering on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a, quote, pleasing aroma to the Lord. The smell of sacrificial love pleases God. These are the aromas. They're the acts of worshiping God. Sacrificial love is the normal Christian life. And friends, for years as just a church family, just to commend what I see, what our elders see in this church and the joy of being an elder at this church, of the way you sacrifice for others. Just I was thinking this week about last week, Keith Kay was here. Keith hasn't been with us in months because Keith has a significant liver problem, and he needs a liver replacement. And uh, knowing Keith for years now, Keith's a, a brother who has Down syndrome, and so he can't drive. And so how does Keith get here? It's going to be Jim Hill getting him, or Richie Sackman getting him, or Robbie Weatherford getting him, or somebody else that I'm not going to name everybody because I don't know who all gives rides, but they are getting him and taking him. Getting him, taking him. Usually, pit stop at cookout or some other restaurant on the way to get Keith a burger and his favorite, was it Pepsi? What do you like? Coke, sorry, messed up. Uh, Coke and would always help him and lay down their life for him. 
Friends, that's sacrificial love. That's serving and you're not going to be paid back for what you're doing. There's now even a list. I think Jake Wright put it together, Jim Hill, that was like how we can serve Keith in taking his favorite drinks to him now because he can't eat all the foods that he once ate. Last week, folks gathered around Keith right here and just prayed over him. Last week after the service, Keith came to me and we started talking about eternity. He's a believer. He's ready to meet Jesus, but he realizes that that day is coming far sooner now. And he knows that. And we were talking in depth, boldly looking at that. Friends, you have modeled sacrificial love in how you've loved this brother in Christ. And there's story after story about how you've loved and modeled that with Keith and, and tons of stories of other people in this room that you have honored Christ with sacrificial love. And friends, guess what that is? That is imitating God. Verse 1, imitate God as beloved children. Verse 2, and walk in love. And you have modeled that so well. Now, as you go from verses 1 and 2 to verses 3 and on, it's almost like you get whiplash. The goodness of God, the life of God that's so glorious, the sacrificial love that's so pleasing to God, they smell so good to God, these next few verses are a stench. It's the exact opposite. They're heinous. It's the life of sin. So just as we're to imitate God, verse two, or, or second point, sorry, is don't imitate the world. Don't imitate the world. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 3 tells us the opposite of living a life of love and self-sacrifice is living a life of lust and covetousness. John Stott says that the transition between verse 2 and verse 3 is going from self-sacrifice to self-indulgence. You see the opposites going on here? And let's just note the equation here. If we are self-sacrificing, we're loving others. If we're self-indulgent, we're, we're, we're loving ourselves only, and we are missing out on opportunities to serve others. Like people are, are not being served. There's actions of love that aren't happening when we're focused here. So that, that does matter. It's a big deal. It's a life of focusing on self. It's a life of focusing on the I wants. And parents, I know this is a fifth Sunday. I'm not going to get in details graphically like I would if all the kids weren't in here. I'm going to keep it higher level than I normally would, but I'm still diving in this passage. So I'm trying to strike that balance. Verse 3 says that sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness should not even be named among the saints. This should not define you at all. 
pornography, flirtatiousness, perverseness should be far from us. And friends, it has been lamentable over even this past week as news headlines came out about sexual sin within churches in our land, among Christians or proclaiming Christians, those who claim to have a a wonderful high view of Scripture, a wonderful high view of God's mission in the world, and disregarding passages like this. It is heinous. And it happens all the time, friends. And we must repent. Lord, we repent. It shouldn't even be named. We don't even toy around. We don't get to the line. We don't tiptoe up to this. We flee this. And friends, the vulgarity of our culture, the vulgarity of our culture tries to to balance like an expressive individualism where people can do whatever they want with their bodies and, 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 and then at the same time put an end to grotesque abuses. But friends, those go together. Like you can't claim pornography is fine and sex trafficking isn't. Those go together. Sex, tra- tra- sex trafficking is the logical downstream of porn. Sex trafficking or a, a porn is, is, leads to child sexual abuse. It leads to objectification of women. There's, there's downstream sins from things that people don't think are big deals in our culture. And it happens in the church, friends. And Paul's talking to believers. Paul's talking to people who are within the church of Ephesus and saying, this shouldn't even be named among you. And he's bringing it up for a reason. They live in Ephesus. That's where the Greek god Artemis is. That's where the fertility god Artemis was worshipped. You can just imagine the practices there. And it was being adopted by those who claim the name of Christ. It is the opposite of a pleasing aroma to God. It is the opposite of a sacrificial life of love. And friends, if it should not be even named among us, it should not be named as part of our regular viewing habits or reading habits or clicking habits or scrolling habits. Scripture says we're to flee sexual immorality because though our culture tells us that our sexuality defines us, Scripture says, no, if you're a Christian, Christ defines you. Your identity is Christ. Scripture says you're united to Christ. Your identity is Him. To live is Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I died in Christ's death. I'm raised in Christ's resurrection. I'm a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. So any impurity and living in that is the old self, the dead self. And friends, we must not live for the dead. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 gives this list, like here, but he goes into even more detail in 1 Corinthians 6, of the sins that have been around, just grotesqueness. And he says this, and such were some of you. Friends, if you've struggled with this, If that's your past, this doesn't define you. And such were some of you, but you have been washed. 
You have been sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were that. You're not, it's not an R. You're not present. You were that. You were living in sin, but Christ came after you, chose you, predestined you, adopted you, redeemed you, forgave you. Jumping down to verse 5, Paul gets really clear that he's not playing games here. Look at verse 5. It says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, if you're just interested in this, the kingdom of Christ and God's probably referring to Jesus as Messiah and Jesus as God. Most commentators don't think that's talking about father and son there. But what he says is there's no inheritance in the kingdom if this is who you are, if this is what you practice. Paul is not tolerating or celebrating heterosexual or homosexual lust. No inheritance. Paul is not adopting a you-do-you, love-is-love mantra, trying to act like sex outside the biblical definition of marriage is somehow okay or compatible. Scripture is ultra clear, crystal clear about sexual immorality, fornication, lust, and impurity. And if we think it's not, we have an issue here. This is not who you are if you're in Christ. And to go down that road is to pursue the road, the path of destruction, Paul says. We must note, though, that this is not just sexual sin. If you're like, no, I don't struggle with that, pass, I'm good. Paul's very concerned about believers who are covetous. Sure, covetousness does link to sexual sin clearly here, but friends, our coveting is probably more serious than we may think, we may ponder. We live in a culture of coveting, among a people of coveting. Like I just think about Isaiah's words when he's like repenting of of his own sin. He talks about the unclean lips, unclean people. We live in this culture of coveting, of wanting, of of wanting more all the time. I mean, it's it's just normal. The average American sees 4,000 to 10,000 advertisements every day. Those advertisements are not saying, your life is great. Don't worry about anything. You don't need to purchase a thing. Be content. Like, I've never seen that in an advertisement. Be content. There's always a desire for more. Always a desire for the newer, the nicer, the better, the faster that will be in a landfill in five to ten years. And we can go with the mantra, I want it now. Anybody seen the old Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie, like the really scary one from the 70s or 80s? I hate that movie. My elementary school librarian showed us that movie every year in elementary school, and it freaked me out. That guy with the, the glasses that like stares a hole through your soul, it scared me. There was a girl named Violet who actually turns Violet because she eats gum that she shouldn't. Anyway, Her mantra throughout the movie is, I want it now. I can even hear it right now in my head. I want it now. That's our culture. That's covetousness. And friends, when things consume us, 
We're consumers. We are end up being consumed by the things. So if you look at the news, we're consumers. We're consumers. You have read Consumer Report. You, you're a consumer, but here's what happens. You become consumed. You become the one that's swallowed up with envy or greed or unfulfilled desires for more. And Paul calls it what it is. It is idolatry. If we are always looking at the next purchase, the next thing, we're not going to be content till we have that, and that will make us happy. This thing will make us happy. That vacation, that object, friends, we are being consumed. And Paul says that is the path to hell. That is the path to destruction. He's talking to a church and saying, some of you are living in this sin and you think you're a believer, but this is defining your life. You're going this path and you're going to end up the path of destruction. Friends, verse 5 says, no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God for those who are covetous, sexually immoral, impure, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Verse 4, though, shows that sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness don't just stay in our heart. They don't just stay here. They're there, but they overflow into our words, into how we speak. Jesus said, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. Verse 4 says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Friends, let these words about words sink in. Our mouth matters. Our words matter. They will either bring honor to God, be that pleasing aroma, or they'll be a nasty stench. Our words bring life or give death. Words that are filthy or foolish or crude joking. Let's look at those categories. Filthy words. These are words that you can, I mean, you hear dirty word, like dirty, dark. The context is tied to lust, vulgarity, and impurity. And notice that instead of thanksgiving for God's good gift of sex and God's good boundaries of it within marriage, there's twisting, polluting, cheapening, distorting. That happens. Those are the filthy words. Foolish words are speaking without thinking, without loving. We saw last week in Ephesians 4.29 that words can give grace to those who hear. You can build up people with your words. These are words that are foolish. They're the tearing down words. They're flippant words. They're careless words. They're forgetting that our words matter. In Matthew 12, Jesus says this, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Our words really matter. Jesus says that. And the third category is crude joking. This is perversion. And friends, I think, I think humor is a gift from God. I think laughing is a wonderful gift of God. I think Jesus was hilarious, probably. I mean, you see at times when he's saying different things to the Pharisees, and you're like, oh, they don't get it. And you just kind of think he's kind of has a smile in his eyes. You're like, oh, okay. They didn't understand what was going on there. But when humor is twisted, 
and used for perversion, it becomes crude joking. You see, Satan takes what is good and perverts it. Satan takes what is good and makes it and twists it into evil. Satan doesn't create things. Only God creates things. But Satan takes what is created and tries to twist it for his own purposes. Crude joking. So friends, how are your words going? How are your words being used to build up or tear down? Are your words flippant or filthy? Because our words reveal our hearts. Our words reveal what's going on in here. Jesus connects the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts. For me, I remember before coming to Christ, going through high school, um, like cussing a lot. Like it was the norm playing baseball in the locker room, both perversion in the locker room as well as just normal words were evil words. It was normal to cuss. And I remember getting saved at 18 in my first college baseball game where I gave up a home run and uh, throwing, giving the home run up and cussing into my glove. And I remember being instantly convicted that like, "Ah, that's who I was. That's because that was one of the big deals for me because my mouth was so filthy. I was like, I need to use my mouth for godly ways. And, and being convicted when I did that, and you're like, God, help me to run from this. This doesn't please you. Repenting, receiving forgiveness. But friends, our words shouldn't be flippant. Our words should be building up, not tearing down. So if we're just like, ah, I can say this, I can say that, I would just say, you don't understand what Jesus says in his word about words. We must bring before our king all of our words. And this isn't about my opinion or your opinion. This is about what does the king say and what do we want to do to honor the Lord with our lives. And notice the opposite of the filthiness, foolishness, or crude joking. Thanksgiving. Isn't that kind of like take you by surprise? Like it's not like the first thing I would think how Paul would end that. Instead of filthiness, flippant words, crude joking, be thankful. But friends, when we're making crude jokes about sex or sensuality, we're not being thankful for God's good gift and how he created sexuality. When we're cussing out the driver or our neighbor, we're not thanking God for for them being an image bearer. When we're using foolish, passive-aggressive sarcasm, We're not thankful for that person on the other end of the conversation and laying down our lives self-sacrificially for them. Friends, are our words full of thanksgiving? And let me just say, let me break the awkwardness. I think most of us could say, sort of. As I've worked on this message this week, I've had to repent of foolish words, especially sarcasm, several times. I've made digs at my kids, treated my wife unkindly this week and had to repent of my words to her. Harshness, complaining, exasperating, and anger. I've had to go to her and repent. So let me just say, there's probably a failure, a a spectrum of failure in this room (laughs) with our words. Let's just be honest. But let's be honest that the Scripture says, but God... 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we're dead and living in the deadness of our trespasses, he makes us alive. He made us alive with Christ, and he seated us positionally with Christ, so we don't have to live this way. We don't have to live this way, and we can fully repent of, to other people, fully repent to God when we use our words to tear down. When we're foolish, crude, perverse, we run to the cross. Friends, Jesus paid for all of our words, so our mouth can change. Our words can build up rather than tear down. They can encourage rather than demean. Our words can be full of thanksgiving rather than division because our words matter. Verses 6 and 7 speak more of words. There's deceptive, empty words. Look at 6 and 7. In 6 and 7, we see Paul, Paul's encouragement to not imitate the world, world in that he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. Deceptive, empty words that are probably going on here, as I mentioned earlier, the culture of Ephesus was this worship to the Greek goddess um, Artemis, and the sensuality was rampant in that culture. So what are the empty words? What are the deceptive words? They're probably just imagining, we don't fully know what those are, but imagining people in that culture saying, man, you're making way too big a deal about this sexual ethic. You're making way too big. You're going to be on the wrong side of history, and you're sexually repressed, and you're like throwing out all these kind of things that smell a lot like our current culture. But what we say is, no, we're no longer slaves to sin. We've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, by, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And friends, let's get the equation one more time. If we're living self-sacrificial lives, we're loving other people. There are people at the other end of that who are loved and cared for. If we're living self-indulgent lives, we are missing out on caring for others that God wants us to care for. And we are thinking about ourselves, and we are growing internal, and we are withering. But friends, God calls us to more he calls us to lay down our lives and love others and show His kingdom goodness to others. So how we're going to end today, Christopher's going to come up and we're going to sing a song that's just a prayer. It's called, Oh Great God. We sing, we've sung it before. That just says, God, take, take my life. I need you. I want you to rule and reign in my life. Friends, our lives should imitate Christ. Our lives should imitate God. Our life will either imitate God, laying down our lives for others and thus please God, be that fragrant aroma, or our lives will focus on us, curve in on ourselves, and we'll be rebelling against God. Another way to say this is either our life will be about us or our life will be about God. For some of us, today is the day that God's going to awaken you that you are all about you, and it's miserable. And God's calling you to look outside of yourself because you need help. You need a Savior. You need someone else to rule your life because you rule in your life has been miserable. 
Friends, Jesus offers that. He offers his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. He offers you his good standing if you'll turn from your sin and turn to him and live for him. So friends, let's stand together. For those who don't know Christ, we would love to talk to you later. Just come to me or maybe whoever brought you. And for the rest of us, let's just pray this prayer. If you can't sing it, just just look at the words and read them, but let's just have a time to pray through this idea of imitating God.